Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. We've got an action-packed show ahead of us today after one of the most intense Grand Prix weekends that any of us can really remember from the Austrian Grand Prix. On track, one of the biggest stories was obviously the crash between Johan Zarco and Franco Morbidelli, and we're going to dive into that. Off track, we obviously had the big story of Andrea Davizioso and Ducati announcing that they're going to split from one another after this season. So... Before we get uh, into the nitty-gritty of it, I'm going to introduce David Emmett, obviously David from motomatters.com. But David, what was your big takeaway from the Austrian Grand Prix? The biggest takeaway is that uh, the championship is still really, really, really wide open. And apart from that, of course, that this track is really very dangerous and should ought to be changed. And uh, no doubt that's going to be where we'll get started whenever we dive into the weekend. But uh, Neil Morrison, you were on the ground in Austria. But uh, what did you think of the news whenever Andrea Davizioso's split with Ducati was announced? Um, yeah, big surprise, to be honest, Steve. Um, I think uh, it was getting more and more likely that this was going to happen in the uh, in the kind of months that have uh, preceded the Austrian Grand Prix. But um, yeah, for David to take the initiative uh, without a plan B, and to tell Ducati that he's not going to be staying with them next year and then to go out and win the race on Sunday. I mean, that's a pretty epic middle finger that he's uh, shown to the Ducati bosses. So, uh, yeah, fair play, Dovi. Okay, so let's get uh, straight into it then, boys. Obviously, there are two of the big talking points that we're going to have over the course of this show. But let's start off with where we were, David, whenever we were talking there about Johan Zarco and Franco Morbidelli and their crash. Obviously, this is something that uh, took the breath away for everyone watching. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely terrifying to see the the way that the crash developed. That there are, I mean, there's there's a lot of problems at at the Red Bull ring. Uh, certainly, turn three is a very very problematic. Uh, uh, place because of the way that the um, that the track sort of snakes up the hill and the extreme uh, pressures that the that, that the bikes are under and the riders are on to actually go to, to get into that corner and to, s- to slow down. Sarko sort of changed his line a little bit and uh, ended up being right in the way of Morbidelli. Morbidelli runs into the back of it. I mean, to me, it seems like a racing incident on the face of it but it's not um it wasn't a particularly clever piece of riding by Zarka I think because he definitely seemed to pull over to to one side and Morbidelli was absolutely furious afterwards as was Valentino Rossi also because of the aftermath because of the fact that you know they touched their bikes went straight on and they went you know motorcycles traveling at probably north of 100 miles an hour you know sort of 200 k's an hour uh flew between riders on track seeing morbidelli's bike go right between maverick vinales and uh, uh and valentino rossi was absolutely terrifying uh, and i think it was zarko's bike which actually flew over the head of uh, uh of maverick vinales so yeah it was just uh it was just carnage and Neil, obviously, we've got some questions in from listeners about what we saw over the course of the weekend. And one question came in from Carlo Groot, where they've asked, is it even possible to make this part of the track safe? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would require quite a lot of money, quite a lot of investment um, from the circuit. But then we know that the circuit is uh, run and owned by Red Bull. Um, if you have ever been to the circuit, you'll realize that no expense has been spared in anything. It's got the best facilities, I think, of anywhere that we go to in the entire calendar. And anytime there has needed to be some uh, pretty quick work done in the past, they've, uh, they've managed to do that. However, basically the same problems regarding danger 
uh, I've been present at the Red Bull Ring since we first came here in 2016. Um, I think we've been pretty fortunate to have escaped a pretty big incident uh, until now, uh, because you know this is the fifth season we've come here since it's been um, it's been refurbished and done up and uh, called the Red Bull Ring. Um, and um, yeah, I mean it would take a pretty extensive piece of redesigning uh, because the big problem going up to turn to turn three basically is the is the kink um that you have just before that the left kink and basically um with the uh, the speeds that are involved and because of the lean angles the riders say that whenever they hit the brakes for the first time it's one of the heaviest braking areas on the track one of the heaviest braking areas on the calendar and you're in constant danger of locking the front wheel. And if you are to lock the front wheel at that point, because of the kink that goes to the left, if you were to lose the front whenever you hit the brakes, you're basically careering straight into the middle of turn three or even the exit of turn three. So, um, you know, I think it's been it's been quite remarkable that we haven't had an incident before now. And, I mean, if I was one of the MotoGP, MotoGP riders, I would be feeling quite... Uh, well not perplexed quite quite worried quite concerned about the thought of having to go back there because we saw absolutely the most dangerous thing or one of the most dangerous things that can happen and we're sitting here on Monday contemplating what could have been and what could have been was one of potentially the darkest days in the sports history I mean yeah two guys came within inches of dying I mean that's that's pretty scary David just to take on what Neil said there just in terms of that section of the track we have another question from one of our listeners glenn whiteman who's asking whether or not they could add a chicane in before that section or whether they would add that in obviously as neil said we came very close to really having to take drastic action but will the lessons be learned from that yeah i mean i don't think they're going to add a chicane before the next uh, week i think it would be complicated because you i mean just putting a chicane in somewhere doesn't automatically solve the problem because you have to think uh, about the consequences of, of of putting the chicane in. Um, you have to think about it, you know what that means for the riders for braking, uh, uh, how the bra- how do the riders will attack that particular chicane where they are likely to fall off because basically it's going to change the, the the trajectory and so it would need to really change the the runoff a lot. Um, we saw on Twitter, I think um, uh, Simon Crafer retweeted it. There was a really quite a, a nice solution to this which was to make turn three uh, a much more rounded corner to make it sort of more of a fast sweeping uh, right hander rather than a you know proper stop and go uh, almost hairpin that to me seems like a, a much better much more feasible solution though i don't know you know who owns the land where and uh, and all the rest of it i think red bull own most of it so it shouldn't be too much of an issue but uh, yeah that that seemed like a much a much better issue but that's not something that could be done you know before sunday that would have to be done uh over the course of a winter uh, uh to, to fix it so uh, yeah but I, I really do hope that they look at it because it's the red bull ring's got so many things going for it. its location and as neil said the facilities are just fantastic just everywhere also in the garages but there's just one or two places where it's it's really just not safe enough yeah neil obviously this is a weekend where a lot of questions get asked in the aftermath, but it was interesting to listen to some of the riders afterwards. Bradley Smith, for one, was saying that uh, you know we've been coming to Austria for years and there's been the threat of an incident like this, but this is the first time we've seen it. So is it something that riders have to be concerned about or is it something that really you look at it and say, 
this is a one-off incident compared to all the races we've had in the past and you just try and move on from it like where do you stand in that um, well, I think the riders have definitely been have definitely been voicing their concerns about this. Um, certainly, I think it was in 2017 when there was threat of uh, rain on Sunday, which thankfully didn't materialise. But I remember on the Saturday uh, in that particular Grand Prix that um, Cal Crutchlow was saying with a number of other guys, I think Danny Petrosa included, that um, if it was raining, they weren't going to race. They were going to they were going to sit up, sit up, sit out because they felt that uh, parts of the track were just too lethal in the rain. Yeah, I mean, you know, so it's it's been something that has been in the post to a certain extent. Riders have certainly been uh, concerned about this. I mean, it was just on Thursday when um, Cal Crutchlow, Jack Miller, uh, one or two other names were saying that they were concerned about the threat of rain um, last weekend because they felt it would be a bit too, bit too iffy to to race in wet conditions. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 not something that's going to going to go away, and I think you know the riders have discussed this quite a lot in uh, the safety commission, but there hasn't really been anything done in in that time. And uh, I mean, you know, it is a it would require a big a big investment on the circus part. Um, we're not just talking about making a small modification here or there. You would have to redesign one quarter of the track or you know one fifth of the track. But um, but yeah, it's certainly going to be going to be um something that's discussed more in detail this weekend and um well people in this area in spielberg are predicting that it's going to be pretty wet uh, in the weekend that's coming for the Styrian grand prix so i mean uh, yeah these problems i don't think are going to go away where do you stand neil in terms of is it a racing incident or is there blame to be apportioned to someone for this crash i think there's blame to be apportioned yeah i mean first of all i want to say that i don't think there was any intention, obviously, on Johan Zarco's part. Um, there were some um, accusations being thrown around in the heat of the moment after the race um, on Italian TV, I think from Rossi, I think from Morbidelli as well, in which they were saying it was like uh, an intentional move and it was, you know, he moved across Morbidelli on purpose. Um, having watched it, I think it was unlucky. I think it was also at those speeds, it was quite quite careless in Zarko's part and um, it was a very small mistake but at that speed it has such massive consequences and there's a there's a pretty good shot with uh, Alex Rins who's just behind a pair of them as they go up towards turn three and Zarko squeezes by on the inside the left kink just before turn three and then he does run very very wide indeed and knowing that Morbidelli is just behind him I think Zarko would obviously in his head exaggerated how he thought or how far in front he would be of Morbidelli but I mean it just uh, it just wasn't the case obviously Morbidelli was quite unlucky it seems that maybe the slipstream sucked him into it but um, yeah I think Zarko needed to take a lot more care going into there because if you look at the line that he basically he he, he takes when he's going to break I mean he does cut across the track with Morbidelli just behind him and I think you know that's uh, yeah slightly careless I would say and David, we've got a question from Rupert Newton, who's asking, is Zarko willfully dangerous out on track? Willfully dangerous is is the wrong way to describe it. it is he dangerous? I think he is careless. Uh, Valentino Rossi put it quite well. He said, you know, we've got this close racing. We've got this very exciting racing. Uh, and that means that riders are having to take more and more risks because it is so close. So, yeah, that, that makes it more difficult. Um, I, I don't think Zarko is... 
you know, willfully dangerous. It's just that he could pay more attention to danger, uh, uh, to, to the dangers of, uh, of certain maneuvers, perhaps. It was one of those things, but the thing is, one of those things at 300 kilometers an hour is very different to one of those things at, you know, 80 or 90. If this happens in a chicane, no one's, uh, it, it's, it, everyone shrugs it off. The point is, it happens at, you know, 300 k's an hour and, uh, and nearly ends up killing uh, a couple of people. And that's, that's the really big problem here. Yeah, the biggest issue you have a lot of the time as well is once you cut across anyone like that, the wind just changes completely on the bike behind and it suddenly, especially now with all the wings that we have, it suddenly has an even bigger impact. But Neil, just when we speak of impact, let's talk in terms of the impact it can have on Franco Morbidelli because obviously Yamaha, we already know we're struggling with engines and suddenly there's a massive crash like this, potentially losing another engine for Franco and suddenly the season gets even more difficult just because of this crash yeah absolutely it's uh it's it's not it's not good just although franco's relatively okay i mean you know that you have to think that's going to have some kind of psychological consequences i don't think you can jump off your motorcycle at 180 170 miles an hour and uh, get back on on friday and just everything disappears those memories from a week ago just just disperse yeah plus there's the the engine thing you know frank was already i think on his fifth engine um for the season so that's uh, that's going to be another uh problem um but uh, just to go back to to the zarko thing i mean um i was looking at this with um one of our colleagues and friends cormac ryan meaning uh, photographer and he was showing me that uh, you know all the Ducatis have a pretty different line to the rest of the bikes whenever they're breaking into uh, whenever they're breaking into turn three um, and as they're because they, they do use the the, uh, the ride height device out of turn one right so like the bike the rear of the bike is quite squatted and whenever they're going through the kink generally pretty much every Ducati is taking a sort of wider exit of the kink and then moving to the inside. So Zarko was taking a pretty regular Ducati line. You would see Jack Miller using that line quite a lot as well. However, knowing that he's just passed Morbidelli on the run up there, he should be far more aware that Morbidelli's right behind him and not to try and take that line. So, yeah, I think basically just to repeat what David said, you know, I think it's a, it's just slightly careless and, yeah, pretty lethal at, uh, at that speed. Yeah, I think it's probably also worth distancing ourselves from Cormac. He's no friend of ours. <laughs> come to this, and I shall get to the engines in a, in a moment, but um, uh, to come to the that point, I, I can't remember who, uh, who it was who said it. One of the riders pointed out that w- one of the things about turn three is that you can take lots of different lines and through through there. But because you can take lots of different lines through that corner, it means you, there are lots of different lines to prepare it. And so that is, if you like, almost a recipe uh, for disaster if two people are too close together so yeah it was it was unfortunate uh, but to uh, answer about Morbidelli's uh, question uh, about Morbidelli's engine I am not sure whether he will have lost that engine because generally um, engines are built to crash the factories know that uh, bikes can crash um, so when they are building engines they design them with a bunch of fail safes to make sure that if the bike does crash uh, it, you know badly uh, then it won't be then it, it should at least stay in, in one piece the internals you know the engine will, it'll automatically shut down it's also built to ensure that there is usually some kind of residual lubrication to stop it from from you know running 
dry of oil and seizing. Uh, the bigger question is the impact, whether the impact will have actually de physically damaged any of the exterior of the uh, 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 of the engine. But it's um, uh, it's amazing what those bikes can actually deal with. The bigger problem for engine reliability is generally the stuff that we saw at, uh, at Jerez, for example, where you know extreme heat and uh, perhaps they did some kind of a you know small design mistake causes the Yamahas just you know stop working properly uh, or to overheat that's a much much bigger problem than actually crashing because the, the factories know that bikes can crash and they design engines to be able to withstand those crashes so that they, precisely so that they do not lose uh, engines in crashes okay and uh David, just out of curiosity, have you been able to hear too much more about what's caused the issues that they had earlier in the season? No, I mean the 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 the, the, the information that I've seen, uh, which you know I've got no idea whether it's correct or not, is it's some it's something to do with valve design, and it could well be uh, you know just the materials used in a valve or something like that. They've used the wrong tolerance, and um, that would certainly be the sort of thing. Uh, that would go pop at very high revs. Um, at that point, the valves are uh, going, you know, very, very fast. And if they, for example, if a valve stem starts uh, starts bending or whatever, then then it would cause things to, to to shut down. But yeah, you would expect it to go properly bang that way. Whereas we've seen people sort of you know limping around on these engines. In terms of the engine situation, what we've seen is that the, none of the Yamaha riders have used their engines. Uh, the engines which they used at the first race in Jerez. Uh, since then, they've used ra uh, engines which they've used in the second race. Franco obviously lost an engine in the uh, in the second race, uh, so he's been riding around with two engines. Um, but that's not going to be a sustainable uh, situation, I think, for them. And Neil, just uh, to keep talking about the Patronus team, we've got a question from one of our listeners, Jared Bean, and Jared's asking... Is the pressure to strike when Marquez isn't racing, is that uh, something that's causing some of the mistakes at Yamaha? Because obviously if you look at Bruno in Austria, we've seen Fabio Quattararo only pick up 17 points. So compared to what we saw in the opening two rounds of the year, it's been an underperformance from him. It has, yep. Certainly been an underperformance from Quattararo in those two races. Um, I think the, uh, the the shadow or the, the yeah the kind of shadow of Mark Marquez must be lingering in the minds of uh, of all of the guys that, that fancy themselves to be a part of the uh, the World Championship um, because well knowing what he can do, knowing his recovering ability, we're all kind of in the dark. I think even Marquez's team are in the dark as to when he's going to come back how fit he'll be when he comes back but um, knowing Mark Marquez I'm sure all of his rivals will be assuming that he'll be pretty competitive when he does arrive back so there must be a there must be a thing with all of the guys to try and um, just put as many points on the board as possible before he does return um, saying that I think Quadraro has been slightly unlucky because the situation at Bruneau was uh, quite unique just the, the kind of the, the terrible nature of the track surface there basically worked against him he actually did okay I thought he had a, a pretty solid race when you consider the struggles of Maverick Vinales for example and I think Quadraro was actually having a really good ride at um, at the Red Bull ring um, prior to running off at turn four he said he was having some issues with his uh, with his brakes he wasn't sure what exactly was going on but uh, it's quite possible that his uh, front brake, brake discs were overheating and uh, he was saying that whenever he was pulling the lever it was basically coming back to the handlebar it wasn't there was no there was no give there or sorry there was too much give 
and uh, and that was just basically causing him to well, to, to to run wide and, and not uh, be as strong as he wanted to be on the brakes. So yeah, possibly a technical issue that that led to that eighth place in Bruno, uh, at uh, the Red Bull Ring. And uh, let's see if he can uh, rectify that this weekend. David, obviously one of the biggest talking points all the way through the weekend that was that Andre Davizioso and Ducati were going to split up. We're going to shift on to the red bikes and obviously. It's a win that's overshadowed by a lot of what we've been talking about up to this point in the show. But uh, for Andrea Davizioso, this was a massive weekend. He knew that if he was to have any chance of winning the championship this year, he has to win in Austria. The track has always been strong for Ducati. He's always gone well here. And in light of everything that happened earlier in the weekend, it was probably even more important for him to come out and uh, show exactly what he could do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, he knew that he had to do the double in in Austria. Um, and as you say, up until, uh, uh, you know, lap nine of that uh, first uh, attempt at running a MotoGP race, Ducati and, uh, and Dovicioso was the big story of the weekend. Uh, to an extent, perhaps the... That crash actually saved Dovizioso's uh, race because Paul Spargo was forced to uh, uh, go for the, the soft rear. He ran out of medium rears uh, and so couldn't use it in the second race. And in the first race, Paul Spargo was looking really, really strong. He was looking, you know, properly threatening. Absolutely can't rule out that he could have won that race. You know, you never know what's going to happen. It's a long race. There's, there were still 20 laps to go. Anything could have happened. But Spargo was looking really, really wrong, uh, strong. Also, in the second race, when Dovizioso did finally win, Alex Rins had better pace than Dovizioso, but he had to f- try and force a pass at turn six, lost the front slid out, uh, and then left uh, Dovizioso to go uh, to get on with it. So Dovizioso had a little bit of luck, um, but absolutely he needed to, uh, to to get the win just to get his championship back on uh, uh, back on track. Um, and it's ex- exactly the kind of performance that he did. Uh, as for you know why he left Ducati, uh, as Neil said earlier, that you know it, it's been it's been a relationship which has been broken for a uh, for for a long time. Uh, I don't think Dovi has any trust left in any faith left in Ducati's MotoGP program, just in the sense that, you know, that, that he knows that they can give him so much, but not that last sort of 1% that he thinks that he needs to actually win the thing. I think he feels strongly that Ducati don't believe in him either. Uh, and so that sort of mutual distrust is, is, is absolutely terminal when it comes to uh, rider relationships with factories. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show before, but obviously with Ducati, they certainly think that they've given the best bike on the grid to their riders and that they should be able to win championships. And Dovi obviously has felt that if they had just been able to listen to him a little bit more, get the bike to turn a little bit easier, that he would have won those championships. So the two of them were always on a collision course for eventually a big disagreement. They've always basically been, you wouldn't want to say it, like, but an unwilling partner because for... Davi Ducati was always his best option to keep winning races, give him a chance of winning a championship. And for Ducati, it's always been Davi that's been their best option. But suddenly now, Neil, we have to look to see what's going to happen with the rider market because we've been waiting for this announcement to take place. But we've also secretly been thinking, you know, it makes too much sense for them. Surely they'll just figure a way to work together. Yeah, you thought that that was the, the general assumption. I think we said it many times in this podcast that uh, Ducati's best chance of uh, a championship win 
probably worst wins in 2021 would be to stay with Tavizioso and likewise his best chance of uh, of winning the championship would be with Ducati but it obviously got to the point where mutual distrust between the, the two parties was was such that it didn't it was no longer feasible to continue the relationship and then there was also the fact that this was proven to be quite a big distraction every weekend Tavizioso was having to field questions how is the contract negotiation are you worried do you have any other options and he said that um yeah he had pretty lousy results at the second race at Jerez. he had a shocking weekend at Brno. and while it you can't solely say that it was because of the uncertainty regarding his future he said that that was a distraction that was something that was causing him to to lose a little bit of focus um his manager simone Battistella said that said as much on uh, on saturday you know davizioso understands that with Marquez not being here, this is a really exceptional chance for him to win the championship this year. And uh, to boost that, he feels that he needs to have a clear mind and having a clear mind for him, I mean, I'm not sure about the rest of us, but having a clear mind for him is basically saying, okay, I'm going to be out of Ducati. Now let's work together in this common goal where we won't be dragged down by bitterness in contract negotiations let's work towards winning the championship and then we'll say our goodbyes. And you have to admire that. I mean, it's uh, it's a clarity of thought and it's uh, it's decisiveness. It's, uh, it's confidence in yourself that everything will turn out when you don't have a plan B as he, he doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, unconventional, but you have to admire him for it. Uh, the only thing that I would add to what Neil has said is that, um, I mean, like we think that, uh, or we presume that he's going to go to Aprilia to take over the place of uh, Andrea Iannone. So it's not as if it's a complete sort of leap in the dark um, and he will be extremely uh, he's a highly desirable rider because his uh, technical skills his technical ability his technical feedback is so very very highly rated uh, a lot of the success which well I mean you know Ducati have made enormous improvements thanks to I think three key figures one of them is is Gigi Delinia obviously is the head of the technical department uh, the other is uh, Andrea Dovizioso whose uh, technical feedback is really good and the other one of course is Michele Piro the test rider who's really fast really precise in his comments really uh, really good so that that sort of like trio broken up is going to be interesting to see what direction the the, the project takes for, from now on um, and if Aprilia managed to sign Dovizioso then they get a really really interesting development rider uh, Alessio Spargaro is fast but he pushes uh, uh, pushes perhaps too hard but um, it, you know Dovi could be exactly the rider that they need to push it in the right direction Sorry, just to follow on from what you said there, Dave. I mean, Alicia Spargro was was essentially uh, rolling out the red carpet on Saturday for Davizioso, was saying, okay, I'm not a boss, I'm a rider. I'm not sure whether we can stretch our budget to meet the demands of, of Davizioso, but what an asset this guy would be, not just for, not just for us, but for me as well, because uh, Davizioso... I mean, whenever we were asking like lots of different writers about the about the news, you do come to understand that he is thought of extremely highly amongst his peers. I mean, everyone was saying that, you know, Ducati is acting idiotically in these negotiations. They don't quite appreciate just what a great writer Davizioso is. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, that's got to be something that's got to be playing part in, in his decision making process um, you know anytime you speak to him I remember interviewing him a few years ago at Hareth I think in 2018 and uh, I mean he, he was genuinely quite prickly on the subject of what he believed to be 
excellent performances that he had put in the past, which he doesn't believe he's got significant uh, acknowledgement. Basically, he feels that he's done a whole lot with that bike, which he has done over the over the course of their relationship, and he hasn't quite been uh, appreciated for it. And um, yeah, I mean, whoever he goes to, uh, they're going to be getting a fantastic development rider and a certified race winner. I mean, even though he is 34 years old, I still think he has plenty to give. If you want to understand the situation, the only thing you need to do is go to the Red Bull website and watch the Undaunted documentary because it's so it's such a clinical um, description or uh, depiction of everything that's going wrong in that garage, the relationship. You can see the whole thing sort of play out in front of you. It's, it's a really, really it's a fascinating insight into the psychological side of of, of racing, and it's really really obvious that just how broken those relationships are so yeah go go there watch that it's fantastic yeah neil i was just going to ask you just about dovi and, and his standing because obviously he's won what 15 grand prix now 14 for ducati it's only casey that's won more races for ducati but uh, when you look at dovi i think all the riders above him in the wins list are all world champions i think he's 10th overall in terms of premier class podiums like it's not as if he's a mug but he's always been treated in that second tier or even third tier of riders in terms of how people view him. And they look at it that he's managed to overachieve rather than to actually live up to live up to the expectations that people had for him whenever he was a one two five rider or when he was in the two fifty class on a Honda and he was able to take the fight to the Aprilias. He he came through the ranks as a real talented rider. And then over time in the Premier class and let's be honest, most of it comes down to his time with Repsol Honda. He just lost that reputation as being that potential star. Yeah, you, you mentioned the Dow, Steve. I think his years at Repsol Honda are still counting against him in some respects, which is it's kind of ridiculous because it, it it basically assumes that riders reach a point when they're in their, what, early to mid-20s and, and they hit their ceiling and, and they can't improve from there. I mean... Um, Yes, he was outclassed by Casey Stoner and Danny Pedrosa in his time at Repsol Honda. That's without question. He would even probably acknowledge that. Um, but he has become a much better, more rounded rider since then. Um, and he does have flaws, like every rider. Um, however, if you think about riders that can adjust to specific conditions in the race... I mean, there's not many better riders than the Vizioso when you think about it. I mean, his ability to start well and be consistent from the very early stages of a race. I mean, there's, you're talking about only a, a handful of guys that are able to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, he's incredibly intelligent, as you will have seen or will have noted if you've watched that uh, Undaunted documentary. Ducati management think that he needs to sometimes not overthink things when he's on the bike and just act with his emotion, just go for the kill without contemplating the outcomes and weighing up whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. I mean, you, you still have, a, you know, the flip side of that is you've got a really stellar rider, probably the smartest rider on the grid as well. And uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of ludicrous that some people still point back to his days at Repsol as reason why he isn't one of the elite riders in the class. Yeah, and I think I definitely agree with that because... It's it's that thing of since he's been at Repsol Honda, he's had, I don't know, 120 Grand Prix. And there is just that belief that he's not going to have improved with that. Or also, in fairness, that he's just not 
uh, we've seen it with loads of riders when they've changed teams in recent years. The team makes a massive difference. The bike makes a massive difference. He's clearly found something with the Ducati that allowed him to show exactly how good he can be. We we saw time and again whenever he goes into those last lap battles with Marquez. You don't put your money on Marquez in those fights. Whereas against pretty much every other rider, you do sort of always think like Mark will find a way to get it done. And just to build on what you're saying there, Steve, I mean, if you think back to, let's say, mismatches of riders challenging each other in the past where one rider is clearly better than the other. And you think of maybe Valentino Rossi and Sete Gibernoi, Valentino Rossi or Max Piaggi. And the fact that Rossi was continually beating those guys year after year, it eventually wore them down and, you know, they, they faded away. They, they left MotoGP, essentially. Um, I mean, Davizioso has lost three championships in the points to Marquez, yet he still manages to keep coming back. It doesn't seem to have a really detrimental effect on his riding. I mean, he's still a championship challenger this year. Um, and that's that shows a real strength of character, a real inherent self-belief um, that he is one of the best riders in the world, because he is. And David, that sort of leads us nicely into a question for you. Davi's second in the championship at the minute. He's 11 points behind Quattararo, but for the whole season, really all we've heard of is how bad a job he's done. You know, when you look at uh, Hareth 1, he was able to somehow figure a way to get on the podium. The second race obviously doesn't go as well as that, but we saw him bounce back from the disappointment in Brno. It's far from a foregone conclusion to write anyone off at this stage of the season. The, the Perhaps the best comparison is to look at uh, Mark Marquez's championship last year, his season last year, where he only ever finished first and second, and then realise how incredibly exceptional that is. What we're seeing now is a much more traditional season where uh, you'll go to one track and a you know there'll be a few riders who have a good, who have really really good results, and there'll be few others who have bad results. Um, and what we're seeing now perhaps may amplified a little bit by the fact that we are repeating races at the same tracks um, is that there will be. Some riders who are really strong at, uh, at some tracks and then will go to a different track with different conditions or the weather will change or whatever. Um, and they will suddenly have a, a much worse day and other riders will have a much better day. So there's, you know, so much is changing. Um, you know, we go from here, we go to Mizano, which again is a very different track. Uh, Barcelona, Aragon, uh, Le Mans, Valencia, uh, Portimao. There's so much that can, that, that, that can still happen that it's, it's, it's completely wide open. And also we've had this change of rear tyre from Michelin uh, which is a bit softer and has a different feel and has um, disadvantaged the Ducatis to a certain extent because they haven't been able to adapt their braking technique to actually use it Dobby said that he thought that they had made a step this weekend in being able to to change that and to actually adapt that so um, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops but yeah I mean that is going to play on through the the rest of the season there's going to be other tracks where other people are um, are there I think also it plays into Mark Marquez um, uh, a little bit because we could quite easily get to Misano and see Marquez come back and only be trailing by I don't know 70 points maybe which is a big ask in what nine ten races, but not completely impossible. You know, still still there, which is what's making this season so fascinating. Neil, just to finish up about the Ducati side of this, who do you look to put onto that bike in place, Davizioso, for next year? I think it's I think it's really got to be down to either Banyaya or Zarco. 
Um, I know Lorenzo's name has been mentioned, but I mean, we've talked about this before in the podcast. I mean, I don't think any of us really think that Jorge Lorenzo still has a has a world championship challenge left in him. Um, just judging by how his career at Repsol Honda ended, um, he clearly wants to come back. But, you know, from just judging by last weekend and the questions that the the boss were being asked, like surely he's surely an option, but it does seem like the Spanish media are pushing that as if it's like, okay, let's make a big deal out of this, even though he might be like the, you know, the, the, the sort of last resort. Um, I think Banyaya seems to be, you know, a, a, a good, a good candidate because he's Italian, he's young, um, he's, really good record in Model 2 showed at the first race uh, or first two races of the year that um, he's made a massive step forward um, smooth riding style able to use the Ducati on tracks where it's not particularly had a good record before but that of course carries its own risk because he's just got injured at uh, the worst possible time so basically Ducati will be making a decision based on his two performances at Jerez and then races when he comes back at Mizano where he's injured. So, you know, it's definitely far from ideal. Um, and has Zarco done enough on the vintage caddy? Yeah, he was really strong at Brno, but uh, he's been struggling to get inside the top eight. Apart from that, yeah, I would say, I would say Banyai would be, uh, he'd be my pick anyway. Yeah, and I think Paco's an interesting one just because if you were to take him, you're just presuming that what we saw in Hareth is that legitimate step forward where you're looking at the in particular the two qualifying laps to be able to get himself to be top Ducati in the second Hareth round you know you're looking at it and hoping that the rider that we saw in the Moto2 class has come back because obviously last year a really tough season for him but there's that potential there for him and you know it could be something that that works really well or it could be something that kind of flatters a little bit the exact same as Zarco but I think at least with Paco you've got a bit more confidence that you know outside forces aren't going to be as big of an impact for him because obviously for Zarco it's been pretty clear that that has been an issue over the course of the last couple of years the thing about how taking an old rider someone like Zarco or someone like Lorenzo is you know what they can be you know they've already shown what they can be because they, we, they have a history in racing and in the class and you look at a young rider like Peko Banyaya and you can see upside you can see you know what they could be you can see that there's that there's unexplored potential and then you're sort of hoping that you can do that but Ducati seem to be all in on uh, on young riders because you know they're talking about Jorge, uh, Jorge Martin who won his first Moto2 race this weekend they're talking about Luca Marini uh, obviously there's been talk in the past about Lorenzo Baldassari but Baldassari seems to be having a bit of a shocking season so yeah I mean it, it, to me it makes much more sense for Ducati to look at young Italian riders which is what they want the, the, you know that's they, they, they what they really want is a young Italian um, uh, rider who can win a championship for them that's that's the absolute dream because they keep on winning championships with um, foreigners which is nice but not quite the same so yeah I I, I really think that, that it's going to be Banyaya I don't think it's going to be Lorenzo I don't think Lorenzo has that real hunger that you need to re really compete a, a full season for this yeah and I think I, I, we've said it on the pod before but uh, Lorenzo his time with Ducati is clouded by those 
three wins, which all happened at circuits where we've seen Ducati just have a lot of success as well. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened with Lorenzo if he hadn't got injured at the tail end of that 18 season, just to see how he would have done. But, you know, it's easy to look at Mugello and Catalonia and Austria and think that he's going to be a world beater, but it's 18, 19, 20 rounds long for a season. And it's a very different story whenever you go to a lot of different places. But David, just to ask you a question now about the rider market. This is a question that's come in. It was a two-parter from uh, Rupert Newton. And uh, Rupert was asking in the second part of his question, would any manufacturer break an existing contract to hire Davizioso? I don't think they would because... They've already made their. There's no reason for them. The the the, the current manufacturers. If you look at the the, the rider signings that we've seen, uh, they uh, they've they're all really clear choices. So if you look at Honda, obviously there's Mark uh, Mark Marquez, and they've uh, tempted Paulus Bargaro away from KTM uh, because they want someone who can take over from uh, from Marquez if he if he crashes. And also there is that history between um, Repsol Honda and uh, and Andrea Dovizioso, which you know might be that the, there might be some 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 friction there. Uh, you look at KTM; they've got Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira, two riders who are doing extremely well really really talented uh, obviously going to be the future again they've both come through the KTM program you're not going to go for that uh, uh, Maverick Vinales and um, uh, and Fabio Quartararo Quartararo is having a fantastic race um, uh, Yamaha are too committed to Vinales to get rid of him uh, even though he's having uh, you know a, a couple of bad races but then you know he did finish second twice in Jerez so we'll have to wait and see uh, Suzuki again they're committed to their two riders there's no reason for them to do uh, to, to do that so the, the only one that is left over is uh, is KTM and because uh, I know we've also got a question about um, uh, you know if Dovi does become world champion does Ducati take uh, take him back um, uh, Ducati Ducati might might consider it but I don't think Dovi Chosa would, would, would consider it I think that marriage is quite simply over. It's done. It's not going to happen because it, it's just uh, th- that relationship has broken down too far. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something that we saw this weekend where it all came to the head fully. David, you mentioned their KTM as well. Obviously, this was an interesting weekend for KTM. Very different to what we saw from them in Brno. But we saw again that they could easily have won a race this weekend. We saw Neil in, in free practice four. You were commenting on it before we came on air that um, Paul's pace in FP4 was really impressive. Just very consistent race pace. And then David, like you said earlier on in the show, maybe if we don't have the red flag, he could have won. Like, what did what did you two think of what we saw from KTM this weekend? Neil, I'll start with you. Um, I think that they will be, yeah, mightily frustrated because there was a... There was a, a race win there on the table for them with Paulus Bargrove. There was a top five, maybe even better, on the table for Miguel Oliveira. Um, I mean, it could have been a repeat of Bruno. It could have been two possible KTMs on the podium, one possibly even winning. Davizioso rode a great race. Let's not dispute that at all. Um, and he said that basically one of the, the major issues that he's been having with the Midland Tire is that he's not been able to understand how to use his major strength, which is braking and to be able to stop the bike effectively with this new rear tyre. He said he's made, after studying quite a lot of data, after Bernoulli made progress with that. However, he said he still wasn't quite feeling confident in the middle part of the corner and how he exits with the new rear tyre. So 
I mean, if there is a year where you're going to beat Davizioso at the Red Bull ring, it, it's this year, or it was that race. And um, yeah, I think uh, the, the chance was there for Paul. So yes, to give you a very long-winded answer, Steve, uh, to your short question, yeah, I think they'll be pretty frustrated. However, this weekend offers up another opportunity to uh, to put that right, and Brad Binder's performance was exceptional again. So plenty of promise there. Yeah, I'm in the same. Um, uh, Polos Bargo had a chance to win it if it hadn't been red flagged. Uh, Brad Binder comes through and finishes fourth. Uh, sure, a whole bunch of people crashed in front of him, but he was still only, what is it, six, uh, five, five and a half seconds behind, uh, behind the winner, which is really very, very impressive. Miguel Oliveira was having a really good race uh, uh, and was going to beat Polos Bargo. I was going to finish in front of him and uh, also was... Uh, I wouldn't say on for a podium, but he was, you know, he, he would have been in the mix for a podium. He was right there. Uh, um, even Ike Lekawona finally finishes a race, um, uh, showed some really solid pace. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, the future is really, really bright for KTM right now. The bike is clearly competitive, at least at some tracks, which is um, uh, already a big step forward. Uh, and they've got some, they've got some really exceptionally talented riders so yeah they've uh, to me they've arrived and I think they are going to be I think they, they, they should be feared and Neil just to what we saw from Paul over this weekend because obviously we're going to talk a little bit about his crash with Miguel as well but uh, it was interesting to re-watch the race I was re-watching it from some of the onboard cameras and when you look at on board from Dovi you could see that in the braking zones all the time the KTM closes right up on him but just didn't really have the confidence that we saw from, or the confidence that was needed from Paul really to be able to hook everything up once we went into the restarted race. It was interesting that obviously the change of front tyres seemed to make a big difference for him. Yeah, it was a change of the rear tyre actually, because all weekend it was the the medium rear that uh, that he favoured, and then he had to, yeah, he basically had no more left in his allocation after the after the red flag. Um, I think you could see he was a bit pissed off in uh, in pit lane because he knew he said he knew basically whenever the, he saw the red flag that ah, I don't have any more medium rear tyres, so he had to race the soft, and he said basically he just couldn't use yeah the, the soft didn't offer the same stopping capabilities at the medium um, whenever he was using uh, that to to kind of slow himself down into the turns so uh yeah that was that was why he was running wide quite a lot uh, as he sort of scarpered and struggled to stay with uh with the guys in that podium fight and uh yeah he then he then made that mistake at turn four which proved to be pretty costly um because uh once again he ran wide in the corner and uh didn't appear to acknowledge that when you run wide and you're in a group of riders someone might be on your inside and uh yeah i mean it uh, it cost him for the second time in as many weeks and neil miguel wasn't pulling his punches afterwards <laughs> yeah he certainly wasn't um i mean uh there's a pretty funny interview that he did with canal plus um which would have been quite soon after the race in which he was certainly um speaking his mind i think he said that uh he said something along the lines of uh, what Paul did wasn't the, the most intelligent thing. And unfortunately, uh, everyone can't be uh, blessed with the, the same level of intelligence. And when we spoke to him, um, he had obviously had another, I don't know, half an hour, maybe a little bit longer to, to cool down, consider his words. Um, and whenever I was listening, uh, listening to it at the time, I was thinking, okay, Miguel's being very... Um, uh, very responsible here he isn't saying anything out of turn he said yes i accept it was a recent incident and 
these things can happen. But then when I was typing up the, uh, the debrief uh, today, <laughs> I realized how brilliantly subtle he was being with, uh, with his condemnation of Paul. I mean, he was basically calling Paul a bit of an idiot, but in a, in a very subtle way. Um, so, yeah, Miguel was basically saying that, um, look, anytime in my recent career, when I've run wide, I know there's a possibility that someone might be on my inside and I make sure to look to make sure before I pull back on the racing line. And he said that, you know, it's physics. Like, you know, uh, there's different ways to enter a corner, but you're basically going to be looking for the same part of the track on the on the exit. And he said um, something along the lines of, you know, you would have to be pretty stupid not to not to think like that, a.k.a. insinuating Paul indeed is very stupid for not doing that. So, yeah, Miguel was, uh, yeah, in good form, good value, I think you could say, on Sunday. Yeah, good insight there from Neil. And, and David, Neil really is a, a prince among kings as well whenever it comes to <laughs> finding out those little subtle details, isn't he? <laughs> absolutely. He, uh, he he absolutely is. But yeah, I mean, like, it, it, basically that debrief was um, uh, was Miguel calling Paul Fick, but doing it in uh, such, a, um, uh, such an eloquent way that um, it was, you only realise, uh, sort of like half an hour afterwards, um, so yeah, he was Miguel is. Uh, I, I really like Miguel because he is such an intelligent rider. Uh, I mean, uh, like Paulus Bargro, the, the, both the Bargro brothers are absolutely lovely uh, uh, men, humans. They're actually sort of you know real, real humans, and uh, they're intense, they're impassionate, uh, passionate. Um, they they absolutely live for their sport, but. Um, it's easy to see that you think, all right, there's 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 just that final little piece of the puzzle missing, and uh, Miguel Oliveira is more of a Dovizioso mould. You know, obviously, you know he's a dentist. He's he's he's, he's studied dentistry at university. He's trained as a dentist. Um, uh, he the, the the intelligence is clearly there, and he's much more analytical in everything he does. But he has, you know, he has that ability to. Switch off the, the the rationality that you need when you go racing. So uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I am so impressed with KTM's lineup. They just they just have such an enormous depth there. And their factory team next year. I mean, when when the news came through that Paul was leaving, we thought, oh man, that's going to leave KTM in the lurch a little bit. But now you're looking at that factory lineup for next year, Oliver and Binder, and you're thinking, those are guys that can win races next year. Maybe, maybe fight for a championship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you would not be shocked if they finished first and second in the championship. I mean, it would be it would require a stretch of the imagination, but it's not impossible do you know what i mean it's that kind of that's the kind of level of, of sort of talent and intensity it's it's really uh, honestly it's, it, yeah it's a really interesting prospect really looking forward to it yeah i'm going to go out in a limb dave and say it's going to be impossible for them to finish first and second in the championship <laughs> i'm going to put that straight in right now it's if, if you were to go down to the bookies and put that on you, the odds would be so astronomical that it would be very fitting for the likelihood of it actually happening. As good as the two boys are and as impressive as we've seen Binder be in, this, in his first four or five Grand Prix, yeah, I think it's... I think I think that's getting carried away a little bit too much there. What about you, Neil? Are, are you, are you going to run down to the bookies and put money on a KTM 1-2 next year? 
Well, I might put a tenner on because uh, you would get an astronomical return. But then again, you know, all those people who put their uh, who uh, who put sort of like a grand odds on on Mark Marquez winning another uh, another championship th- this year are probably weeping into their beers at the money that they've thrown away because you know these things can happen. People can fall off, people can get hurt, and then uh, then surprises can happen. And you know what you need is intelligent, fast riders to be able to capitalise on that, uh, which we've seen with Quartararo this year, we're seeing with Dovizioso this year, and I. I think um, uh, the Portuguese riders next year. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I'm just really excited about it. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I want to make it clear as well. I, I haven't been crying into my beer about my Marquez bet there, but I have <laughs> been. I have been crying an awful lot about it. Uh, Neil, just when you look at um, this weekend, obviously we saw what happened with Paul and Miguel. But we also saw that Aleish was getting into a bit of hot water as well. And Dave was mentioning there how analytical Miguel is. But uh, Aleish was fairly keen to go through the data as well on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, he was. Yeah, there was uh, yeah two big flare-ups, um, two big flashpoints uh, throughout the weekend. The first, of course, was uh, Paul and, and Miguel on Sunday. And then, uh, yeah, the second was um, Aleish and, and Petrucci. Um, and, yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, in some respects, it's a storm in a teacup. Um, it's over one guy losing uh, a qualifying lap. Um, however, a pair of them have history in the past. Um, I think Alicia has gone on record by saying that uh, Petrucci is the dirtiest rider in MotoGP and uh, copped a lot of flack from um, from Petrucci, from Ducati personnel. Whenever he said that, uh, they don't like each other. That much is uh, very, very clear indeed. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think uh, Alish was in the wrong in this point. Um, he was touring, looking for a bit of a toe towards the end of Q1. Uh, Petrucci was riding the slipstream of Valentino Rossi. Alish slotted in between them and held Petrucci up, even if it was only slightly. Petrucci, I think, lost out on a place in Q2 by two hundredths of a second. And uh, judging by how visibly frustrated he was, uh, I think you could assume that uh, he probably could have got a place in the in Q2 had it not been for Alicia's actions. So, uh, yeah, there's a bit of a song and dance uh, about it afterwards. And uh, the pair were, you know, quite entertaining on Twitter on uh, Sunday, Saturday evening. But, yeah, I think Alish has to, uh, yeah, has to cop a bit of, uh, bit of flack for that, a bit of responsibility. So that was one of the downers of the weekend. Dave, I'm going to bring you to one of the good points of the weekend. We finally saw Joan Mir on the podium in the Premier class, and it's been it's been coming for a while for him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he it's one of those riders where um, you could see all of the various components there, and it the, the, it just had to come together again. Um, everything had to sort of fall into place, and it, fall, it fell into place in the in the second race at, uh, at the Red Bull Ring. Um, he was pretty good in the first race as well, and he had really really good pace all weekend. What is that to say? He rode a really really sensible race, a really really smart race. Um, he the the Suzuki is a properly competitive machine when Jack Miller started struggling with his um, uh, with his front tyre um, Juan Mir struck and uh, took advantage and, and, and got there he, he, there was no way that he could catch uh, Dovizioso uh, but yeah Juan Mir is you know he's young he's talented this is what he's uh, so his second year so he's starting to uh, you know, he's a fully fledged MotoGP rider now. He has the um, uh, the experience. Uh, obviously, his first year was also marred by uh, injury, especially the massive smash that he had at Bruno, uh, the Bruno test last year. Um, that really ruins probably the second half of his championship, and he didn't really regain full fitness 
until the championship was almost over. So, um, yeah, it was hard to judge him by the end of his uh, of last year. But yeah, this year, since since the start of this season, he's been really clear that uh, that he he has arrived. And also, it's good to see there's a there is a tension between uh, Mir and Rintz. Um They're both pushing each other, and neither of them like it if the other one finishes in front of uh, uh, in front of them. So that has really sort of uh, that's helped drive uh, the, the the performance of the team, I think. And Neil, this was a weekend where it got away from Rins a little bit, like obviously crashing out from that leading group, crashing out from the lead of the race. But uh, it looked again that this was an opportunity for him and that'll give Suzuki some heart for next week. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I was I was writing up a race report last night and uh, when I was going through it, reading it over again, I was thinking, my God, I barely even mentioned the Suzuki's and that's like a, it's a massive story, but so much else had happened over the weekend that, uh, yeah, sadly, they were they were kind of in the shade. Um, but yeah, Rins was exceptional. I mean, still returning from fractured dislocation of his right shoulder, which happened, what, a month ago, just over a month ago. Um, and and it's remarkable. Like the Suzuki isn't supposed to be a fast motorcycle yet. Um, it was, well, it was, I wouldn't say it was holding its own. It was clearly losing time in the first and second sectors to the, the KTMs and the Ducatis, but it's corner, the corner ability of, of the bike and the the speed of both of the riders through sectors three and four was, was quite astonishing. Um, and man, I think, you know, I think that's a massive blunder from Rins. You know, we can say how, brilliant that was that he was even there Rins wins that race and I I put him back in the championship absolutely because Fabio this weekend come in at the Stereo Grand Prix is maybe going to struggle again because the Yamahas are not are not so suited to the Red Bull ring Davizios is going to be strong again this weekend but who knows how Ducati and he will be when they get to twistier circuits like Misano um, we know that Suzuki's a rounded bike where it works well most tracks uh, you know, Rins had a great chance to get himself back in the championship here, and yeah, he threw it away. And and the thing is that he had a massive front end moment at turn six. I think one or maybe two laps before he crashed, so the warning was there. Yet he still tried to push ahead there, and uh, well, paid the price for it. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I asked him about that in his uh, in his debrief on uh, Sunday, and he said basically he knew that there were two places where he could pass Dovicio, so turn six and turn nine, uh, and you could actually see it the whole time that, that it was clear that the Suzuki was much quick, quicker through those sections. Uh, the problem is that ter- turn nine was too close to the straight, so he was f- afraid that if he attacked at turn nine and got past, he would just get taken again on the straight. So he risked it at turn six. Turn six is a left-hander, uh, so obviously... The, the the left side of the tire doesn't get used quite as uh, as much as the right hand side uh, around the Red Bull ring, so it's more of a risk. So he decided, all right, I've got to try at turn six because this is my best chance. Then I can build through seven, eight, nine, ten um, uh, onto the straight, get just enough of a gap to be able to lead into the the first corner. And uh, if he could lead into the first corner, then then he felt he was he was afraid. So it was a calculated risk, and it was you know it was a, a gamble that didn't pay off basically. Yeah, I think I'm going to have a few of them through the course of this year, Dave, because it's been uh, action-packed. It's been hard to pick who's going to be the winners. And I think this weekend was a perfect example of that because we came here expecting that, you know, this is Ducati's track. This is where Ducati always go well. There's a new rear tire that's going to help Ducati find what they need. And we, well, we've left Austria with obviously a Ducati winning but we could easily have seen KTM, Suzuki. We could have seen a host of riders really at the front. And Neil, it brings us on to the winners and losers section from the Austrian Grand Prix. And 
for me, like the big winners, obviously what we saw from so many different riders able to get to the front, so many different bikes that were competitive. It's just another example of just how good MotoGP is going to be this year. It is another example of that, Steve. Yep, it's a wide open championship. Um, we're seeing crazy variety. Yet the top three in uh, in the Grand Prix were what eleventh. Uh, they crashed, or they were ninth at Brno, and the the podium at Brno were uh, I think they were pretty bad at uh, the previous race as well. So I mean, yeah, we're we're not really getting much consistency here in, in terms of the podium positions. So um, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, it's certainly interesting to see it's certainly open. Um, are you asking me for my big winner of the weekend? Yeah, who's your big winner, Neil? It's got to be Dovizioso. I mean, uh, what a what a, what a statement win! Um, doing it straight after telling Ducati that he was going to be clearing off at the end of the year. I mean, um, yeah, man with uh, the strength of his convictions, and uh, yeah, chapeau to him. And for you, Dave, who's your big winner from the Austrian Grand Prix? My big winner from the Austrian Grand Prix is KTM, just because they've been, they proved that they were so competitive. Obviously, Brad Binder won last weekend, um, uh, showed that he was something special and that the KTM was competitive, but that was one track. Uh, here, uh, you know, they could have had two bikes on the podium. They could have had a win again with a different rider. We saw just how good um, Oliveira was. We saw how good Binder was. Uh, we saw the potential that uh, Espargaro had. We saw the the, the progress that Lecuona is slowly starting to make. Uh, and as I said, the the the, the KTM. Uh, quite honestly, the KTM looked like the best bike of the weekend. So yeah, for me, for me, definitely KTM. Okay, and uh, I'm going to throw in one extra one as well there. I think Albert Arenas in the Moto3 class because what he's been able to do this year really has been impressive. He surprised surprised me the whole way through the season. It's like always in the Moto3 class. If you've got that experience, you've got to make it count. And this looks like the year where he's really putting it all together. But uh, if there's winners, Neil, there's always going to be losers as well. Who's your big loser from the weekend? Uh, Dave, you go first. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, it, it, for me, it's obvious. It's, it's Maverick Vinales. Um, Maverick Vinales is just having a shocking weekend. To be fair, the way that he recovered himself um, after you know nearly being killed by flying motorcycle parts was honestly very, very impressive. But uh, he needed to have a really strong result here, and he was where did he finish? I think tenth. Uh, t- yeah, tenth. It's just, you know, 10th behind Ike Lekuona. It's just not good enough. And again, it was the Moto2 rubber. He goes out, there's no grip on the track after Moto2 and he doesn't understand it. And you, you, you just cannot do it at this level. He needs to sort that. He needs to have his bad days be much better because at the moment, one, well, his good days is amazing, but on his, uh, on his bad days, um, he's just not good enough and he needs to be, his, his, his bad days need to be much better. I'm going to say, Johan Zarco because uh, he obviously was involved in that massive crash he was extraordinarily lucky that uh, he was okay Um, but I think you listen to a lot of the riders speaking on Sunday not all of them came out and said you know Zarco is you know they were were saying bad nasty things about him but I think there's not a perception of Zarco as someone that you are not going to trust entirely whenever you're racing with him um, because we've seen incidents in the past or we've seen races in the past where he's been super aggressive and it's been kind of great for us to watch but riders have not been 
that impressed or that happy with what he's been doing. You think of Philip Island in 2018. I think this is another one uh, where you're a rider and you look at that and you think he hasn't paid enough attention whenever he's been in a close fight with someone. And um, yeah, I mean that's uh, it's going to be it's going to be tough to recover that that sort of trust from uh, from his peers. So yeah, Zarco for me. Yeah, not a bad shout on that as well, Neil. For me, I'm going to go with Paul just because this was a chance of winning the race. Obviously, we've talked about how the red flag really took that chance away from him in some ways, but it's still another example where, unfortunately for Paul, there's just that unfulfilled chance of trying to get a good result. He he looked like he had great pace all the way through the weekend. Obviously, with the different tyre, he has to change what his expectation is for the restarted race but uh, yeah I thought this was just another one where it's a bit of a clumsy crash he had made a few mistakes before that as well he, he was struggling to get the bike stopped into a few places it looked like he was just trying to ride a little bit too much on emotion a little bit too much on the limit and yeah for me this is a weekend where I got away from Paul yeah and he didn't manage the his tires he ha- he had a clear favorite he clearly favored the medium rear tire uh, but he didn't have a spare one for the restart and I, and that was what basically what ended up costing him very very dearly he couldn't stop the bike with a soft rear whereas he could with a with a medium rear and if it just sort of you know like used an old medium uh, in the warm up instead of using i think they used two new uh, two mediums in the in the warm up in the morning uh, two new ones then he would have had a, a, a new tire left and he and he didn't and i think that was um uh, that was a costly mistake and and it, it just cost him too much so yeah def- definitely a good shout um, uh, steve yeah and uh, we didn't really get to touch on some of the other topics obviously this weekend we're going to be back in austria so it's going to be interesting to see who's been able to find some progress who's been able to build on what they did last weekend but it was good in Moto2 we saw, as you mentioned earlier on, David Jorge Martin pick up his first win in the class. It's going to be interesting to see how he reacts to that. It's going to be interesting to see how his teammate Nagashima reacts from another disappointing weekend in that class. Bastianini came to Austria with two wins in a row and suddenly he has to bounce back from a big crash. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens in the intermediate class next week in Austria as well as what we saw in the in the MotoGP class and then obviously Moto3 is just always a bit of a free-for-all but there's definitely going to be an awful lot to still keep our attention for a second week in Austria yeah absolutely it's just something to look forward to and again uh, as we saw after uh, the second race in Jerez it was not the same you know it, it wasn't just a rerun of um, of Jerez 1 there was a lot more there was a lot of change there was a lot of a lot of things happened so uh, you know it's it, it's not it's not a foregone conclusion so should be an interesting weekend yeah the more things change the more they stay the same and that's why every wednesday we'll have the paddock pass podcast released in the early hours of the morning just to make sure everyone's able to get up to date on the weekend just passed and then what we can look forward to in the following race weekend so from myself steve english from david emmett from neil morris and a big thank you to listening to the show big thank you for your questions during the course of the show so make sure if there's anything over the course of the weekend that uh, tickles your fancy that you make sure that you drop a note to any of the three of us or at paddock pass pod and uh, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to make sure that we get just a Patreon only question and answer as well. A little bit more of some of the big details of what goes on within MotoGP. So until next week on the Paddock Pass podcast, big thank you for listening to the show and enjoy the racing this weekend. 
talking points to cover from the Austri- uh, from the Austrian Grand Prix uh, blah, 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 from Austria. So David Amick from Moto Matters. I I'm starting again, boys. I'm starting again. That was fucking dreadful. That was good. It was good. That nah, was shit. <laughs>